talking about video games. Yeah! Thank you for joining us on the Donkey Kong Artist Podcast. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Patrick Shanley, and joining me as they do every single week, whether I want them to or not, is my best friends Edmund Arnold and Colin Codega. How are you guys doing today? Good. I feel kidnapped because you forced me to do this program every week when I have other things to do, and then you forced me to wake up extra early this morning to do this thing. So yeah, you're forcing us to do this. I feel like my will. Black Panther forced you to wake up early. Don't blame that on me. Um, why does black people always have to get blamed for something, Pat? You, you always divert back to black people. No, it's not Black Panther. It's you, Pat. It's I'm sorry. You. you should be. But I am doing well. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm so good. You're so good? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm being held against my will, so I'm, it's kind of a spoke when spoken to type deal. But, you know what? Fine. Uh, yeah, if you guys don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Someone save me. No, it's not. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, no, doing doing really well. Uh, very excited to see Black Panther here in a couple hours, and uh, yeah, just holiday weekend couldn't couldn't be better. We had a uh, big week. A lot of games came out. One of the ones that is in the news the most seems to be a game from a first-time publisher, Warhouse Studios, and it's called Kingdom Come Deliverance. Uh, Eddie, you were able to get your hands on this game. It is polarizing, I guess. The reviews are kind of all over the place, there's some good things, there's some bad things, but from your own personal experience, what do you think of this game? It is all white. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Um, it is, okay, I don't know. Um, I'm having this, these weird emotions while I'm playing this game where I have intense desires of wanting to like it, and then I have intense lows of wanting to very much hate this game. So it is an extreme roller coaster that hasn't been comfortable for me so far. It seems to be what's reflected in the reviews. Um, this is a weird game. It's it seems familiar, and yet at the same time, it's not very familiar. It's sort of like a slower—I don't want to say a more boring version, but like a, a trying to be more realistic version of like an RPG. It, and that's what they're going for. They're going for this realism. Everything feels rare. It's like essentially a walking simulator, and a lot of people are getting upset about that. But I'm I'm doing a lot of walking. So one of my roommates comes home and sees me playing this game. He's like, you're doing a lot of walking. You, I've seen, been watching you play for five minutes, and you're just walking from there to there. So that's what it is. It's The mechanics are okay. I, I seem to enjoy them, but I don't know if that's every, that's going to be enjoyable for everyone because you do have to sleep. You have to eat. You have to take baths. You have to wash your clothes. You have to... Um, build up your things like strength, agility, and all your stats are built up in the way of, like, Skyrim is built up. So the more you use it, the higher rating you get. But you have to teach yourself to read. You have to teach yourself how to ride a horse. You have to teach yourself how to hunt. So there's, it's very... You play this run-of-the-mill blacksmith boy, and you basically have no skills whatsoever. So everything where you start with this game is very, very, very basic. The archery has no reticle. You have to basically guess where your arrows are going. The game or the fighting mechanic, the one-on-one sword mechanics, is very slow, methodical. It kind of feels like you're underwater. I don't know if I like it or not. Still, but everything of this they just steep it in realism. They try to make it as real as possible, and that ends up making the game very boring. History is not coming alive for you. And the story is the story is good. I mean, it's history, so there's a lot of like a king kidnaps another. A usurper kidnaps a king in order to take control of the kingdom. There's like this little half brother thing, but it doesn't really matter to you because you're just this blacksmith's son, right? So this, for that, I kind of I kind of applaud them because they kind of make the story very personal. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like you have any stake in this bigger thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. It's just this background playing, right? Your more personal story is avenging your parents' death. Sorry for the spoiler. You um, you're going after these group of bandits that you've seen, um, basically. Grave rob your old your old town that was ravaged or whatever. That's basically the gameplay or the main story loop. So that's that's your story. But then you're hearing about the everything that's going on in the Czech Republic at the time, and it's interesting. But it's again, it's boring. It sounds like if PBS made Skyrim. That's exactly what it is, and it's it's they do a good job at that. I mean, the codex is explained. 
everything. I mean, it ex ex explains what the woman of the time are doing. It explains, like, servitude back. So, I, I mean, it has everything, and it's very easy to read. It's very easy to digest. So in that regard, if you like history, go ahead and pick this up. But just notice you're playing a history game. Right. And I don't even yeah. know if we have a lot of history games, but it's a history game. Now, Eddie, is with it being historically focused, I, I do see how uh, it would make sense to applaud the studio, Warhorse uh, Studio, since they're you know really going for the era of realism. Now, do you think it would be a little bit more interesting if they took someone that was maybe historically significant that you would play as, or if you were a little bit more entrenched into the decision-making of the times, or do you think it actually benefits from being just a nobody in this grander, you know, grander historical setting? It benefits from you being a nobody in this grander setting because it actually feels like you're building this person from the ground up. So every time I talk to a different person, you give a whole bunch of wealth of options to choose from, but you're basically building your speech patterns from the ground up. So in that regard, and I think if you're playing as a historical figure, that's where things can get murky and you can't really play along with the story as much. Mm -hmm. But this one, you're basically free to do everything. And I think a lot of times where games mess up, it's where you're playing this historical figure and you really feel like you're having to stop the world from ending. This game feels personal. The story feels personal. And I, I, I like that. I like that more so than playing as, like, someone who is, like, needs to work in tandem with the other group of people in order to bring down Julius Caesar. Like, this seems like I'm never going to meet the king, right? I'm never going to have any type of... At least I know right now. And if he stays with this historical realism, like he's saying, I, I hope this doesn't happen. It's an interesting take because it's like video games really focus on being the chosen one, being like the person to come in and actually like change a, a historical events or you have at least your footprint on it. So that is an interesting approach about being like, hey, you're just you're nobody. You're you're <laughs> and which which is, you know, it, it ties into the realism. Right. Yeah, well, it does. In their own words, because we we were lucky enough to get a uh, another inter an email interview with uh, some of the developers on Warhorse Studios. Uh, this is what they said in regards to what we're talking about right now, uh, is that it might be true we stripped away a lot of the established RPG helping wheels, uh, speaking of reticle and other things like that, but we focused even more on the R in RPG. Role-playing is an important factor in KCD, that's Kingdom Come Deliverance for those in the know, as your decisions matter and can change the outcome of quests. Will a wide range of gamers like it? I don't know, but we certainly try to deliver a buffet of different features and elements in KCD that offer not only a high replay value, but we also allow you to shape the game to your needs. I, again, not having played it myself, but hearing you having played it, it seems to be a bit of both here. I applaud them for doing something different, and particularly for making a game where you focus on somebody who's not the savior of the world. Uh, but at the same time, I can understand why other games do that, because these are escapes, and it's fun to play as, like, the chosen one. Um... So, I mean, the question just comes down to execution, and it seems like they executed some things and then not other things as well. I don't know, man. I don't even know if you can say they executed some things, because this thing is a technical nightmare. I, I, the popping issues are crazy. The there are They say that there's no like people of color in the game, but if you're looking at the craziest thing about this game, and I'm playing it on a basic PlayStation 4, no PS4 Pro, no Xbox One X. I should have got this game for PC. I'm beating myself up for buying this game on PlayStation 4, and I'm hating myself for it because it's playing that bad. But they have this thing where if you're looking at your NPCs from far away, they look like black people, and then when you get close to them, they automatically turn into white people. Their clothes will change if you come in close. So far away, they'll look like they're wearing pajamas, and then if you come in closer, their clothes will automatically change. This game is broken. I've had multiple instances where guards were molded together, so two guards were one person walking in tandem with each other. I had an hour yesterday where I couldn't get through one mission because every time I tried to play a dice game with a guard, the game would crash. So I had six reboots to get through this, and they made me play this five-minute-long dice game that's not even fun. So if you're going to steep your game in realism and you're going to steep your game in all these cool gameplay mechanics, make sure you're going to release a game that's functioning. I mean, is it fun? <laughs> that's the main question I have. It feels like one of those games, and I'm like, uh, it feels like one of those games that you had to play when you were in high school, but it was like one of those learning games. You know, like on the school computer. <laughs> and 
it's fun and at times. So yesterday I had an instance where, God, I, there's this mission where you see this is why this is why this game is such an enigma to me because I'm struggling to find out instances where I had fun with this game. There's this mission where you have to go on a hunt, right? And there's this high this high noble guy who treats you like garbage in this game. So he takes you out on a hunt, which is very real. He's on a horse. You're falling behind them. And you guys are talking about where you come from. And then you guys split up, and then you have to bag ten hairs. So I'm spending most of my time going through this woods looking for these hairs. And that, to me, it felt real. It felt like... I was actually on a hunt. It felt like something from Game of Thrones that I watched on television where we, we made this long trek out somewhere. We set up camp, and I went out, and we hunted these hares. The arrow mechanic is a little hard to get used to, but it's fun. That was fun to me. And then he ends up getting kidnapped. You have to save him. You have to fight off two guards. That was a little – that was fun. I had fun with that. But then there's these other instances where I can't get through a mission because the thing is broken. Or I can't find a character because they say the character is going to be there at 2 p.m. Because this is what this game does a lot. They give you timetables. Meet this character at 3 p.m. Meet this character at dawn. And they never show up. So I'm sitting there and I'm doing the wait for an hour and then doing the wait for another hour. And they never show up. What is so more realistic game, than that? I, I don't know. I, I, I t I'm telling you. So there's good things in this game, but it just play. It's a technical nightmare, and I had not played a game this broken since Skyrim when it first came out, and even that was fun. Do people tell you that they're going to be there in five minutes, but they're really 20 minutes away? <laughs> no. No, it's more like a meet this character at dawn, you go there at dawn, and then you're waiting like three, and then they show up at like noon, and then the mission starts. Jeez. So it's it's things like that, and, I, and I've read on Twitter that not everyone's having these issues. It mm -hmm. might just be a base PS4, base Xbox One, but don't punish me for having a base PlayStation 4 is what I'm saying. Don't punish me for making the decision to buy this game on PS4 rather than PC. That's insane to me. And another thing, the lock the lock picking mechanic is insane in this game. And if you want to take – and so much of this game is based off lockpicking in the beginning that this mechanic doesn't even work to the point where they have to go back and fix it and they're going to release a patch next week. So these are the things that are infuriating about this game, and it makes it hard for me to say for anyone to go pick it up. Uh, it kind of goes back to a lot of things that we say in the past where, like, if your game isn't ready, just wait. <laughs> like, we can wait extra weeks if it means we're going to get a finished game by the time it comes out. Um, what I'd like to do a little bit, just to, to let them speak, I, w I wish we could have had them live to ask these questions um, directly to them, but so you can respond to some of the things that they said, and I want to focus on the realism and the historical accuracy, because that seems to be what they're selling the entire game on. Uh, so again, this is Warhouse Studio, Warhorse Studios saying, uh, first and foremost, we want to tell an intriguing, sto intriguing story that immerses you in the medieval, medieval Europe. Realism and historical accuracy is just the spice that we add, while it still remains just a game. We hired a full-time historian, consulted universities and museums, studied manuscripts to work together with sword fighters, bow shooters, and reenactors just to create a medieval experience to the best of our knowledge. Does it accomplish that? Can I ask a question because I don't know medieval Europe that much? Mm, yes, as the, as the resident expert on medieval and Europe. And this is a very sarcastic question. It's going to come off very catty, but was English the predominantly used language back in medieval Europe? Because everyone's speaking English in this, mo in this game. And everybody, and if you're going to have a game that's steeped in historical reality, don't you think some of the people should be speaking, what was the language, predominant language back then? Where are you? I mean, you're in the Czech Republic in this game, you're right? You're in the Czech Republic, yeah. Everyone's speaking, speaking Czech? English, and most of the NPCs have an English accent, or an American accent. So, so it's like English with an American accent? Most of the NPCs do. That's bizarre. And if you're going to steep your game in historical reality, then you better go all the way, is what I'm saying. They went... They went halfway. So every person in this game should not be speaking English, in my opinion. And I don't know if that was a... I don't know if they wanted... They didn't want people reading while they're playing such a boring game. I don't know what the decision was behind <laughs> that. But that's just where I'm coming from. If you're going to steep your game into this, you better go 100%. Are there... It seems like there's a lot of similarities to Skyrim, too, between, like, lockpicking and conversation trees. It, it really seems like... Ugh. I'm trying to pick, like, not See, mean things, but it seems like a boring version of Skyrim. 
it, it is. It, they took everything that made Skyrim interesting and then put it in this game. And I would be a little bit more lenient on this game if some things that if some of the gameplay mechanics that they were doing were like monumental or life changing or wow, I've never seen that before. I've seen all this in other games before. I've seen everything in this game and other games before. But guess what? Those games worked when they came out. When speaking of this Skyrim, from I mean, one of my favorite parts of Skyrim is wandering around and talking to random NPCs and kind of hearing their snarky comments, or they'll say something just insanely rude or just super funny. You'll overhear people talking. How is the interacting with just random NPCs? I mean, is there a lot of variation in conversation and comments, or is it kind of just flatline the same kind of cookie cutter for for all the random characters that aren't really involved with the story? Oh, they kill Skyrim in that regard. Every every NPC has something different to say. It encourages you to speak to every NPC because that raises your speech crap. The, the things they do around conversations and the things they do around speaking is actually really good. And I, I, in the interview, Pat asked, and I'm just going to go back to the interview real quick, what can players look forward to when the game releases that we haven't seen in trailers yet? And he responds, we emphasize the role-playing aspect in your personal decision-making a lot. Most likely there won't be any new things that we've talked about on our YouTube channel, but surely many people will be surprised that We Kingdom Come Deliverance really doesn't grab your hand and drag you through the game. Sometimes you'll need to, rush your, you need to use your brain because we, we only tell you the most obvious ways for how you can solve questions. There might be other ways to solve them, and it's up to you to find out. So in that regard, yes, sometimes you can talk to NPCs to find other ways around quest to solve them sometimes you can they react differently to what you say to them so in that regard i feel like they built a good world where every npc is different and every npc has something different to say so i applaud them for that but again when i go and talk to someone and then they're like it's, it's the popping issues i and i can't stand the popping issues is when i talk to someone and then all of a sudden their hair populates on their head right or their complete outfit changes. Oh, and another thing. So this game really, I'm sorry, I'm complaining a lot about this game, but I just have to get this out. This game emphasizes you to talk to people, right? And like I said, I'm playing on a PlayStation 4. You have to load every time you go into a conversation. There's a five to six second loading screen. Sometimes it goes up to ten. Every single time you go into a conversation. I want you to think about that. Every time you talk to an NPC in Skyrim, it goes into a six to seven loading screen. That's like if every time I tried to talk to somebody in real life, I had to sneeze right before I started the conversation. That's what it is. So every time I go in and to talk to someone, I'm rubbing my temples because I'm getting so annoyed. And it, it, that, it's, that is insane. Yeah, that's that is insane. To that me. is particularly bad for a role-playing game because the entire point of the game is exploration and talking to NPCs that you're interacting with. And if it's a six-second load time every time, it's going to discourage you from talking to those people. Absolutely, and it, it, it's oh. so. You see what I'm saying with this roller coaster thing? Like the NPCs, there's so many of them to talk to, and they're so interesting, and they build out this world. But every time you talk to them, you have to load. <clears throat> and do you really want to talk? Do you really want to go through a town? And have to talk to every single person when you have to finish when you only have like six hour playing session with this game. You know what I'm saying? Mm. That's going to take your six hours right there. It seems like there's a lot of good uh, shrouded in like a lot of mechanical issues that are going on. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a title that only appeals to certain people as opposed to other people just based on the subject matter itself and the way the game is presented. Uh, you know, stripping away a lot of the traditional things from this genre of video games. All that being said. Knowing that this is the first game that Warhorse Studios is releasing, is this a studio that you would follow in the future having played this? I think so. The foundation's there for me to be interested to maybe purchase another game by them. We'll see what they'll do with the updates with this game. I don't know, maybe in six months this game might be a fully functional game. We saw a lot of people were complaining, comparing this game to The Witcher. Don't do that. Um, a lot of people are comparing this game to like Skyrim with all the bugs that they have. Don't do that because this game is Skyrim and Witcher are. I don't think they can be compared to this game because this game doesn't have anything that Skyrim and Witcher had going for them. This game is just another one of these open world survivor RPGs that is trying to base himself in realism. That's what their stake is, realism, realism, realism. And that 
in terms kind of makes the game a little boring. I like games like this, though. Don't get me wrong. I love games like this. Would I recommend this type of game to other people? No. This is why I would probably stick with it. If, you, if I were to recommend you to get it, I would wait a year, six months to a year, wait for all the patches to come out, and definitely buy it on sale. Do not spend the full price on this game. Well, and it strikes me as a game where it's almost like going to kind of go into the audience of, like, the Eve's Online. It's just people that want to actually go and immerse themselves in, like, live a second life in an era that they can't even fathom living in real life right now. Um, I mean, I guess you can go to medieval festivals, you can go LARPing, you can do stuff like that, but it's a way to immerse yourself in that historical era, and you kind of want to live there. Now, for myself, I would prefer a Skyrim experience, even if it is buggy, I'd prefer that because it's like, okay, I got three hours of game. I want to go fight some dragons. I want to do something ridiculous, and it's just, just addictive and fun. I'm not really looking for that experience to go immerse myself in a historical setting and be a piece of a larger kind of historical society. Um, so I totally get it will appeal to a very niche audience. Uh, so I'm sure it's going to have a very big cult following, but I don't think the masses are really going to uh, really adopt this type of gameplay. I don't know. It's how much did it sell the first weekend? I think it sold, or the first week, it sold real well. It's, it did sell well, yeah. I think over 500,000 copies were sold. Let me verify that's, that's that. That's more than niche, yeah. Um, and I think people are kind of clamoring for this. And, you know, Pat, I don't think I really addressed your question. Yeah, I would, I would, I would play more games by them. I'd be interested to see where they go from here. Um, and it's a small studio, I have to say. It's an accomplishment to put out a game that big because the game is huge and I understand that when you put out a game that big there's going to be a lot of issues with it mm-hmm. but man it's hard I'm going to treat you like a AAA game I would say the same thing about EA if they release a game like this so this just comes to the territory yeah that's I think it. that's I think that's fair and yeah it hit 500,000 sales in two days which is pretty big for a game like this is a pretty big accomplishment yeah and I think it's I'm, number one on Steam it's been number one on Steam all week sorry Colin Oh, no, no, that's fine. I'm just saying I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to following kind of what the sales look like week two, week three, week four, and then how many, like, even though I doubt they're going to release this information, about how many concurrent players, how many active players are actually sticking with this with the bugs. Are people going to set it aside and come back to it in six months? Or since it's been selling so well on Steam, the number one thing I hear about Steam all day is people buy games and they never play them because there's so many games on Steam mm-hmm. and people's backlog's crazy. So is this game going to just get buried? Um, I'm really curious to see what the uh, what the life cycle of this game looks like. Only time will tell. And I don't want to be like someone to start anything, but I wonder how many of those purchasers are purchasing this game just because it's to support the guy behind this game. Um, and this game did get a lot of controversy, so it'd be interesting to see how many people just purchased it just to support him. And if they're actually playing it. For the most part, when I'm on Twitter talking about this game or talking to people who are playing this game, they're, they're genuinely liking it. Except for the horrendous, horrendous, horrendous bugs. And I'm not I'm not even speaking lightly. Like, if you know me, if you've known the games that I play, I will usually stick to a game if they have horrible bugs. I'm not the person to complain about them. I think it's a lot of... It's sometimes unfair to knock a game, especially if small studios, if they're building a game this big. But this is just... It's crazy how bad this game is with the bugs. It's crazy. And I have, like I told you, it's 2018. I shouldn't be playing games like this anymore. I thought we had a point like three to four years ago where we were going to stop doing this. Because I don't know if you remember, calling like two to three years ago, we were getting broken game after broken game after yep. broken game. Battlefield was broken. What was that? What games came out that year where everything that they released was broken? I had thought that we were getting away from that. Maybe the AAA studios got away from that. Maybe it's something we got to worry about with the small studios. And I hate saying that, but I, uh... maybe it's something for us to look out. I want to bash my head on my desk because I say this every week, but you know why they keep doing it? Because 500,000 freaking people bought this game. So studios <laughs> are going to keep pumping out shitty, you know, b- broken games that have bugs um, because people buy them. People are still going to buy them. So once again, we don't and it buy was a good them. release window. It was like a perfect release window because, like, no big name games are coming out. Everything coming out right now, like ports and games that people have already played before. This is like one of the first new experiences that have come out besides Monster Hunter this war- this year. Right. So, and I think gamers are hungry for something right now. Yeah. So maybe um, studios need to look and start releasing games around the January, February, and maybe not stop this dead time that you guys always give us. To, to call that out just for the January window, uh, Dying Light a few years ago 
got moved to the January release slot, I don't think that game would have had such a big following if it came out during the holiday season and got lost in the mix. So I think we're seeing a lot more publishers push to have uh, the post-holiday release so it can get its own kind of window. I think that's what made Monster Hunter such a success. Not mm-hmm. only it's an amazing game, but coming out in January when other games weren't coming. Think about if they would have thrown Monster Hunter out with Assassin's Creed, um, Wolfenstein, all those games coming out during the holiday season may have been buried with uh, the Western audience. Right, absolutely. It's smart business. It, oh, smart business, see? Joining me now is the creator and art director at D-Pad Studios for Owlboy, Simon Staffness Anderson. First off, thank you very much for joining me. This is uh, very nice of you since we are on very different time zones at the moment. Oh, yeah, by all means. I think it's uh, eight, no, six in the evening over here. Okay. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, you're almost 12 hours different than me. It's like I'm watching the Olympics. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out all my times. <laughs> uh but yeah, thank you. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Owlboy, a game that I love uh, and I think is one of the most beautiful games I've ever played. But the first question I have to ask is, why is everyone so mean to Owlboy? <laughs> well, it's a it's sort of an interesting transition that we we got from that one because the um, we wanted to make a game where the the main protagonist was not sort of your your standard hero. The idea is that you're not really that special and uh, that sort of permeates everything that goes throughout the rest of the story. And if you've played any video game, you know how difficult it is to convince people who play games to care about someone. We're sort of like sociopaths when it comes to uh, everyone that we treat around the, the games. Like you can just reload and then hit someone in the face and then keep running. It's like that, that's our natural instinct. So. In order to cement that bond, to make sure that everyone actually cared about the character, we needed someone that you really despised and to make sure that it felt like people didn't like you so you connect to people later. Um, So we started out the game a little rough. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that that process ended up being being very effective. Um, And... It has to be said that in the very early days of development, um, gameplay was all that we really cared about. So it took about halfway through development until we figured out um, what sort of the red thread that connected the entire story was. Um, And once we figure that out and what people's connections were, then we can really hammer down on uh, what those themes were. And it was that connection of being... Uh, a bit of an outcast, but still bonding together with others to manage difficult tasks. That's one of the things I love so much about the game is that there's so much, there's a lot of humor. Uh, there's also just a lot of heart. And like you said, you connect so early on with Owlboy. And then later on, it becomes a component of the game is that connection and working with others, especially because you start off feeling so ostracized. So I think that does come across in the gameplay. Hmm. Uh, this game was originally released uh, for on Steam, correct, for, for PC users? Yeah, that is correct. Wonderful. Um, well, we did have like our, our own little version that you could download right before the Steam version out, but we don't talk about that much. <laughs> <laughs> it's the forgotten stepchild. Uh, but now it, it's going to reach a much larger audience, hopefully, uh, moving to the Switch. Uh, what was the decision behind that? Who Were you approached by Nintendo? Did you guys pitch this to Nintendo? How did this come about? Well, you know, we'd all grown up with Nintendo uh, as kids. Uh, the, the Sort of the ironic thing, um, we were doing an interview about uh, the release of Owlboy. When was it? I think it was on the day they revealed the Switch. Mm-hmm. So we were doing this as sort of a, a podcast thing, and we didn't realize that we were we were stepping into the, the Nintendo Direct at that point. So we just did it live and got a, a reaction for the reveal of the Switch. And as we were sitting there, we were just like, you know, this would fit pretty well. Uh, it it seemed to match all the controller types, and uh, uh, it had the correct button layout for it. And so we immediately started to scramble uh, as to you know how how can we get it on this thing? Um, and of course we we looked at 
all the different consoles because we want as many people to play it. Uh, we've had requests from, from every which way direction, but it seemed like pretty much everyone was was very accommodating to have the game on this, their system. So uh, Switch just seemed like a natural fit for us. Uh, does, do things change when you switch? Um, I mean, I would imagine, obviously, you have to map it to a different controller, but is there anything we can expect that's different in the Switch version than uh, previous iterations of the game? Not as of current date. Uh, so we, we were considering a good few things uh, that we wanted to add to it, um, but the longer we looked at it, the more we thought, you know, we've been doing this for literally 10 years straight now. Uh, might be better if we just make this as good of a version as we can rather than this extra expensive thing. Um, but in terms of, of porting something over, I mean, uh, the, the game natively runs on a language, on an engine that we made ourselves, which is not easy to port over, unfortunately. Um, I mean, when you've been working on something for this long, it's uh, you get a bit of junk code in there and, and that kind of thing. Um, so just getting this thing to work in the first place was a massive challenge. So, I mean, it took 10 years to make the game. How long did it take to, to port it over to the Switch? Oh, I think we've been working on this for a little over a year now. <laughs> okay, so a bit, of, a bit of a quicker process. Yes. Uh, you mentioned it yourself, this game, it feels like a Nintendo game, at least to me, growing up when I did and playing the old 16-bit Super Nintendo games. This this is a good fit, I feel, for Nintendo. Um, did you take inspirations from from specific games for the art style of this game? Because like I said, this is such a beautiful game, it's what everyone says right off the bat about this game. So what what were your art inspirations for this? Oh, that's, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> so the... Um... I've always been like a, a massive fan of the uh, the Zelda and Mega Man games. Yes. Um, I I think Mega Man Three was one of the first games that I like really sat down and played forever. Uh, and I think Link's Awakening was the first game I ever bought with my own money. Um, so it was. Uh, you can see a lot from that in there, um, like. The, the character designs, for example, uh, Wind Waker taught me uh, that the most important thing is to have very recognizable shapes for people. Um, so uh, I, defi I definitely took a lot of inspiration from that and just the, the environment, just making sure that everything feels uh, alive and that you can interact with everything. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very important. Um, Mega Man, of course, has very stylized designs for things, and I wanted to make sure that whenever you fight something, it, it I don't know, it looks cool. <laughs> um, but of course, um, when it comes to the, the art side of things, uh, one of the, the goals, and I realized that this has changed a lot in recent years because now pixel art is such an, uh, a broad thing, mm. but you have to remember back 10 years ago, uh, the Wii had sort of just been announced um, I think pixel art was mostly allocated to like flip phones and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so now uh, the goal back then was sort of to bring this back and show people that you could do it properly. So I look to a lot of sort of classics now that aren't really remembered for their pixel art, but just being good games in general. So uh, Breath of Fire 4, for example, had gorgeous pixel art. Uh, but it's kind of been, been lost to the, the, the waves of time. Um, even the old Capcom arcade games had fantastic art in them. Mm. Um, there, there's just so much that we sort of tried to lift from, well, lift is the wrong word, um, look at from the past to, to sort of bring back and remind people that you can do this properly again. Right. Does it present, uh, I guess it presents a unique challenge, but does it present more of a challenge to do these almost throwback games uh, as opposed to the, you know, the power of these consoles now uh, to make these graphically impressive games, but this is more, uh, it's a different art style, and I just wonder, is it, is it harder to, to go back now that the, the processing seems to be moving in a different direction, almost like you're working against it? 
Well, you have to remember in, in the case with all art is that it's really just a medium. Uh, there's no, uh, there is no such thing as, as things getting obsolete. Um, that's more of a, a public perception. Uh, for me, pixel art, it, it's always about how much you can get out of as little as possible and how much skill you can get into doing that. Um, and there definitely is a difficulty curve in doing that sort of thing. Like when you increase the, the threshold of what your quality is, then of course the workload goes up, just the same thing as with 3D. Um, and the, the way that 3D is right now, uh, like with low quality work, you can see that all across Steam, like people download Unity assets and, and sort of throw something together. Um, and then you have the extremely impressive AAA projects uh, that, that are starting to mimic real life at this point. Um, but when it comes to, to pixel art specifically, um, the thing is, um, yes, it takes a, an immense amount of work. Animations are not that bad. But backgrounds, just drawing something extremely detailed that you'll, the less you use of it, the more time consuming it becomes. But the, I, I think the, the biggest challenge is public perception. Um, because pixel art is not as um, prevalent anymore, uh, people have less of an idea of what uh, proper quality work is. And of course it is because it's a specialty field. But that means if you do something right, it might look indistinguishable from something that was sort of put together in the shader or that sort of thing. Um, so it might be that at some point, regardless of how much work you do, uh, the payoff might not be as, as large because people can't tell the difference. Uh, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, um, as with 16-bit types of graphics and newer games coming out, there also seems to be more platformers coming out than there was 10 years ago, definitely 15 years ago. Uh, do you think that there seems to be a bit of a renaissance going on for platformers? Um, have you noticed that there's been a rise in them or more of, a, more of an appeal to game designers to design these types of games? To an extent. I think... Um, I think what's happening now is a lot of indie developers like to make uh, something that resonated with them uh, as kids, but with a twist. Uh, that seems to happen a lot um, because it's it's interesting to interpret old ideas and try to, to find new ways to make them fresh again. Um, the the so-called Metroidvanias are very um, very prevalent right now. Um, Ironically, Owlboy is not really in that category because we're not uh, we're not as freely explorable as maybe a, a lot of other games. Um, roguelikes, of course, are very popular right now because there's a um, computers are powerful powerful enough now to basically generate an entire map for you, and you can have endless levels for something. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to platformers, I think it's we're, we're sort of in an interesting middle ground for that right now because um, we have seen so many good examples of good platformers that people sort of have a base idea, can always start out with something decently competent. Um, but at the same time, there's so many new studios that everyone is experimenting with something weird. And I think as people establish themselves more, uh, I think we're going to get something really, really good very soon. And we're all already starting to see some, some very interesting projects. Absolutely. Uh, I'll close with a more generalized question. Just uh, how do you feel currently about the state of indie gaming? It seems that, at least to me personally as a consumer, there have been so many wonderful, wonderful indie games over the last couple years. Uh, you, as somebody in the industry, uh, what's, what's your opinion of it? What's, what's the lay of the land as you see it for indie gaming? Oh, that's a difficult one um, because there's so many nuances within that. Um, I think if you speak to any indie developer, uh, at some point you're going to have people talk about how the bubble isn't going to last or they're worried about uh, future prospects of things. Um, and 
I think that has to do with uh, just competition in general. Uh, there's so many of us now, and it's relatively easy to develop a game. Um, and it's not so much the quality of that. It's just that it's a downright overwhelming task for anyone to just find games nowadays. Um, I think that's going to go a bit up and down now. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that just because people are sort of scrambling to figure out how to bring things to consumers, um, a few studios are not going to, to last. The, uh, the pool is going to get a little bit smaller and bigger companies are going to rise up from that again. But you also have to remember, um, we're not an American studio. Um, we're, we're three guys sitting in Norway with some people that are working on commission for us. Um, and our situation is a little different. Um, Alboy was possible to make in part because uh, a lot of it was funded by the government. And on our side, uh, the yes, we, we have to sell the game, and that's a massive part of, of how we do things. But um, at the same time, uh, it has a lot to do with how we can run our company natively based on the support that we get, because it's, it's almost impossible to run a company by its own dollar. Um, and so a lot of our industry is dependent on local politics and how that funding gets sent around. Um, unless, of course, we, we move somewhere else. And that will be a discussion for another time. So on, on my end, um, it's, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword. I'm hoping that everyone gets to sell their games and be happy, and I hope we get to continue making our games for a long while because, you know, that's what I think we all want to do. <laughs> I can definitely agree with that. All right, well, Simon, thank you very much for your time. Also, Three Men Sitting in Norway sounds like the greatest indie band I've ever heard, so if you ever want a side project, <laughs> I would go with that. <laughs> but congratulations again on making such a great game and all the success you guys have had, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. We were lucky enough to have not one but two guests on this week's podcast because we're the podcast of record. We are the absolute leaders in the industry. Don't check that or try and verify it in any way, but it's true. <laughs> Our other guest this week uh, was the creator and the art designer of Owlboy, which is a game that I think we will be a little bit more um, in agreement on. Uh, we had Simon Staffness Anderson on the game. I apologize, Simon, if I have destroyed your name. Uh, I probably did. I'm so sorry. Anyway, Simon came on to talk about this game, which I love. I think this is a delightful game. Uh, it came out a year ago about on Steam, and now it is being ported to the Nintendo Switch, which is the version that I have played. I loved it. I know that both of you guys have played it as well. What are your thoughts on Owlboy? Yeah, I mean, I just recently picked it up for the Switch. Um, I read that, you know, they pushed back the PlayStation 4 release, but I uh, was lucky enough to download it on Switch, and I am absolutely loving this game. It is such a really cool art style. It's actually a deeper story than I thought. There's definitely, um, I'm still pretty early in, but there's some themes I can tell where I think they're going to go some kind of different places in a little bit more mature story than I thought. There's a very interesting, like, society with these owls and uh, whatnot and characters in it, but... The flying mechanic's amazing. They have the best flying mechanic in a platformer I've ever played with. I feel like flying's always kind of awkward in platformers. They nail it. Um, art style's amazing. The music is fantastic. And I'm literally, every scene I go through, I'm just looking at the background and the setting, it is gorgeous. I, I'm loving it. Looks great in the handheld. Looks great in console mode. It's the ideal perfect Switch game. I played it on my entire hour commute yesterday, and uh, I'm loving it. And it's really the verticality. I played it on um, Steam in, back in 2016. It was my top three games of the year that year, I believe. I was absolutely enamored by this game when it came out. It was I've never played anything like that before. I love like the mechanic around. It was kind of like a Metrovania, but without being a Metrovania with the upgrades you could get. So, like, picking up different characters, and they would have different guns or different types of abilities for you to use, and they would order the progress of the levels. It, it was it was ingenious. It was something I've never seen before, and I 
absolutely loved it, and I'm so glad that you guys get to play it because it was one of those games that I was so nervous that only PC people would be able to play. So I'm just so happy that everyone gets their hands on this. And it, I was so down on Kingdom Come Deliverance. I'm the complete opposite of Owlboy. Owlboy nails everything, and just sit calling that story gets so much better. It starts off so good. But your eyes are going to be like, what, by the end of it? Because the things that they do with that story is simply remarkable. Oh, boy, I just buy it, buy it two times, three times, just buy it. This game, within the first, like, 35 seconds of the game with the story, made me laugh so loud that I had to set down the controller real fast because of how unexpected the way they treat their main character was. Mm-hmm. They're me yeah. and Otis. They're no, really I was going to say... It's very interesting, uh, yeah, I was not expecting, like, the protagonist to have, uh, he's basically bullied, and he's treated wrong, and you run into other characters pretty early on that are kind of cast aside and not treated well also, and you kind of team up with them, and I can really tell that there's some more mature themes that I think they can hit on in this game, which you typically don't get in a platformer, uh, with this sort of 2D uh, art style, but... Oh, man, like, I'm blown away with this game. I, I'm absolutely loving it. It's the only thing that's been able to take me away from Monster Hunter. And I'm actually, when I sit down to game, I've been, like, selecting Owlboy to play uh, over the past few days when I've been so hooked on Monster Hunter. So that says a lot. So uh, D-Pad Studios, they, they know what they're doing. And if you have a Switch, this is the reason to get a Switch. These awesome Steam games that are now going to be port, uh, ported, they're going to the Switch and just having this game on a Switch, I feel like you're getting good use out of that thing. Also, I mean, there's fantastic Nintendo first-party games, but right. um, yeah, it's amazing. These are the perfect types of game for Switch because these are games that are great to play on the go, um, which I think is one of the it's the one thing that the Switch has above everybody else because it's a portable and a home console at the same time. But they seem to be leaning into it, and games like this are the perfect things that they should be porting onto the Switch. So I commend Nintendo as well for going for this. Uh, what Simon told me in the interview was is that they kind of had their choice. They were approached by everybody uh, to who they would want to port their game for. And they chose Nintendo, which I think was a perfect choice. I can't think of a better marriage than Nintendo with this kind of old-school, uh, classic 16-bit type of platformer that has solid gameplay and is just so charming. It's, it's perfect for an on-the-go game. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm literally in a boss battle right now, and just being able to hit pause, put my Switch into sleep mode, throw it down once we're done with the podcast, I'll turn it back on, and I can just pick up right where I was playing from. So it is the ideal Switch game, in my opinion. Yeah, we definitely need to see more of those Steam games kind of transition over to the Switch. Um, I don't know if Undertale has made its way over there, but I would like to see Undertale over on the Switch. There's just a lot of, like, those small PC indie titles that would just work well better on the Switch. It makes me think that Owlboy could have probably been a Nintendo Switch exclusive in a lot of ways. Could it actually makes more sense on the Switch than any other system. So I'm hoping that they recognize the potential in that and we get more projects like that. Which but. you definitely are seeing it in the eShop on the Switch. You're seeing a lot more platformers. But I'll just take a moment right now. I know you're probably not listening, but Motion Twin... Developer Motion Twin, please, 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 please get Dead Cells out of early access and put it on the Switch. I want that game on Switch so bad. That is the game I can't play. I don't have a gaming PC. I want it so bad. Put Dead Cells on Switch. And I think Dead Cells and Owlboy came out around... No, Dead Cells came out a year after. But yeah, they're similar veins. But Owlboy is just one of those things where it's just like kids can play it. It's very accessible to anybody. It has like that cartoony look to it yet the story is so deep and in a lot of ways i like i liked it because it was similar to kingdom come where you're playing a nobody right you're playing otis who's bullied by everyone you don't have a big like save the world story it's just you trying to progress you trying to you know grow up you know what i mean like so i like stories like that and i kind of wish we could see stories like that pat what about Oh boy, kind of because you're you're very into these like big games like Zelda and Final mm -hmm. Fantasy and things like that. What about Oh boy drew you away from those big experiences? Something a little bit more smaller and personal, right? So, well, I'm glad we brought that up because I'm going to preface it with this. I got Owlboy, boy. I played it for like hours, probably sunk about four, three hours into it right off the bat. Like just in one session, sat down and played this game because I was so enamored with it, and then I put it down. And I picked back up my Switch the next day, and it sits right next to Zelda in my little Switch queue. And I went right back to Zelda 
because look, this is me personally. Zelda offers me so much. There's so much to do in Zelda and different types of gameplay and different worlds to explore. Whereas a platformer, I'm just going through a track that I'm on. I'm not saying that I don't like that. I play lots of games like that that I do like it. The only knock that I have on Owlboy is that the gameplay can be a little bit repetitive and yeah, it's a little yeah. it's a little too easy. It's not super challenging. I wanted to I compared a little bit to Cuphead just in its story. It took ten years to develop Owlboy. It's from this small independent studio, even though they're from Norway, they were funded by the government. Uh, <laughs> Cuphead was absolutely not funded by the government. These guys mortgaged their houses. Um, but they both have beautiful, beautiful art style. But Cuphead is too hard for me to really get into, and Owlboy is a little too easy for me to really get into. I'm sorry. This game was funded by the government? Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, for, for what purposes? Uh, to fund a video game, I guess. I don't know. That's what Simon really? told me. I have to I have to look that up, but that's what I heard firsthand from Simon. That's awesome. Can we get some type of government program over here where we can fund indie games like that? That would be kind of cool. <laughs> you want your tax money to go to funding video games. My, I'd rather that than go build a wall. So, um, I would just prefer they fixed my streets in Southern California. Would be nice, but yeah, that would be yeah. nice too, right? Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Keep going. Pat, where? Yeah, well, where? Um, what country is uh, D-Pad Studio? Where are they located at? They are Norwegian. Norwegian. Okay. Yeah, they got that oil money. That's why, dude. They 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 pay everyone like a tax stipend just for living there. So that's probably why the government's able to fund stuff like that because. They are oil rich. It's, all, it's a much it smaller first. country, too. I mean. No, it's not. And if you heard it here first, if you want to start a game studio, move to Norway. You might get it paid for by the government over there. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my takeaway from all of this. And then if you're also hearing this, go listen to our last podcast where we explain to you why you should make your own video game and stop complaining. Nice. See, we're nice. Yeah, Lincoln bet. stuff. We're Lincoln stuff. There we go. Oh, and, and also on top of that, you may want to be uh, get good at making video games. Yeah. Because that kind of probably helps, too. I don't think they'll uh, just give a blank check like, oh, hey, go to the video game office and here's a blank check to make a game see nah that's secondary i say just go for it whatever nah just go for it just move pack up everything move you know sell all your items and go make a video game in norway it's 100 percent foolproof you heard it here first if you make one hey. like owl boy i have all your support look i liked this game i did i liked it quite a bit i thought it was the most beautiful game i've seen in a very long time it's just uh, i don't know i feel like more and more if i'm when I get into a game, I'm into a game, and I will sink hundreds of hours into it. I am so far into Zelda, it's almost embarrassing. Like, I, I'm 100%ing Zelda. I'm nearing 100% completion on Zelda. So you got the Master Sword? Oh, I got the Master Sword 100 hours ago. Did, did you do the, uh, so you got all the pictures and everything? You found all the memories yep. and everything? I sure did. Oh, wow, Pat. Oh, wow. I think, I think that also goes into the way, uh, uh, kind of you're wired to play video games though like you said you're willing to put 100 hours into games now that's not to say that you're buying every single new game that comes out and sinking 100 hours into every single one of them yet people like eddie and me like we are ones who will the new hot game that comes out each week we may pull the trigger on it and maybe we put some hours into it but uh yeah that i mean you're the way you approach video games allows you to do that, and I get kind of jealous sometimes. I'm like, why am I buying some of these games when I should just sink 100 hours into Zelda? Like, what am I doing? Right, well, no, no, no. You, have, you have 60 hours in a Monster Hunter. I have 80 hours in a Monster Hunter, so it's just, it just depends on the game, you That's know? That's true. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of games that really can't particularly hook you and I, Colin, because we're so yeah. used to, like, high-quality games, so... Like, That's not, because Pat likes... Bad games. Well, Pat, how Pat's like bad dare games. you? But Pat, Pat likes sees like story heavy. That's why I asked, like, what about? Because he, he texted me early on Monday, like, man, Owlboy is amazing, and I'm like, that's surprising to me because the only other small project I think you've ever really liked that I've heard you say, and I could be wrong, was Super Meat Boy. I love Super Meat Boy. You love these like big projects, and I think that's why you work at Hollywood because you like that type of um, entertainment. But I have a question that's gonna. I keep asking questions, but. We're talking about, like, Otis, and we're talking about Henry, that's the main character of Kingdom Come Deliverance, and how they're just, like, these nobodies, right? And they're kind of, like, the story's real personal around them. Could we see this type of thing with Hollywood movies? Because, you know, you see things, for example, and this is a bad example, I might get yelled at for it. Um, how dare you! The Last Jedi, when Rey's, it, spoilers if you haven't seen The Last I Jedi yet, it's coming up. Rey's parentage comes up, and she's basically a nobody, and people were enraged by that. And we see a lot of these movies where the main character is the chosen one, like you said earlier, Pat. Mm -hmm. Or the main character is, or a lot of the games that you play, Pat, Final Fantasies, that character is a, 
a prince that's going to take the kingdom one day. Or has some type of ability where they are like the end of end all be all of things. Do you think that we could get to a point where we could see more stories where the main character is a nobody? I like is a no one and more personal stories. Yeah, does I, that work? I love stuff like that. I think the reason why I personally am upset about the Last Jedi and what they did with Ray's parentage is because you are the ones who built it up into being a big deal. I don't care what Ray's parents are; it doesn't matter to me. But if you're going to spend an entire movie beforehand saying it's an important part of her character just to be like, "Oh no, it doesn't matter," or like this guy Snoke, who's supposed to be this big, humongous main bad guy, and be like, "Oh no, it doesn't matter." You're the ones who put that out there in the first place. That's true. I get, uh, Maybe that maybe that's a bad example. I'm trying to think of like another example. So like for like Frodo, was, was Frodo a nobody? Was Frodo a, a no? He he's related to Bilbo Baggins. Oh, uh, okay. So he has like some type of royal lineage, right? We're not royal lineage. No, he, he does not. And this is lineage. I'm so glad you brought I mean, up Lord of the Rings because a I'm reading Lord of the Rings right now, and b I think it's my favorite story of all time because of that theme. The theme of Lord of the Rings is is that the most unassuming creatures in the entirety of Middle Earth are the ones who save all of us. They are the bravest, they are the only people who could carry the One Ring, and that's the most beautiful part of that story to me, is that anyone can be a hero even though they're afraid the entire time while they're doing it. That's what Frodo is. Frodo is not Aragorn, he is not like the Chosen One, he is not some big master warrior, he's a scared little hobbit who's like three feet tall, and he topples the evil empire. That's what I love about that story. And that answers my question kind of like, why are we not seeing many more, a lot more of those type of stories told in Hollywood or video games? Why are we getting a lot of these chosen one type stories? Because and it's Would these easier. type of games be the shift of it, in my opinion? I hope so. I would say, look, think about it from a storytelling perspective. It's much easier to tell a story where your character... Everyone can connect to somebody who feels like a little bit ostracized, but everyone who does feel ostracized wants to feel like they're very important later on in life. It's much harder to tell a story where somebody, nothing about them made them great, they were just great on their own, based on what they did, somebody like Frodo, as opposed to somebody like Luke Skywalker, who it's like, oh, it actually turns out you're like this chosen Jedi who's right. actually better than everybody else. That is a much easier story to tell, and it's almost kind of lazy writing. No, it's, it's, it's lazy, and also I think it's a safer route, because people identify, even though it's kind of incorrectly, I think uh, most people in an audience are going to identify with someone being the chosen one, because everyone, most people assume that they will achieve greatness, or they will, that they are the, maybe they don't think it all the time, but it's kind of like, oh, I'm the center of the universe, I'm the chosen one, and, they, and people kind of, like I said, it's lazy, it's easy for people to identify in a weird way, even though it's not true. I think audiences kind of identify with that story mold as well, mm -hmm. and it's comfortable and it's easy and it's what people know already. Um, yeah, so I think it's when you're making a big Hollywood blockbuster, it's a lot easier to sell a studio on a script where it's like, yeah, it's like you know, you don't have to try as hard. Well, just just look at pictures on uh, on Facebook and Instagram. You know, people now that we're getting a little bit older, people show photos of their kids, and I know they're telling their babies and their toddlers, "You're the most special person in the world." Like we are told, a lot of a lot a uh, high percentage of society in the U.S. is told by their family from a young age, "You're special, you're special, you're special," and then you go out on your own, and you realize like, oh crap, I'm not that special. Right. I'm just, I'm just a number. It's like Chris Rock's tambourine special. He says that's the problem with society right now is that we're telling all of our kids that they're special. And he says he's, he took his daughter to a vice principal or orientation, and his vice principal is telling the kids that everyone is telling everyone can be whatever they want. And he, Chris Rock's like, I looked around the room and I saw about half the room was welders. So it's like we need to stop. We need to temper our expectations for our children. And this is someone who works with kids. It's like mm -hmm. a lot of kids come in and they want to be business owners, right? A lot of these kids aren't going to be business owners. They just don't have the means to be a business owner. They don't have the capital to be a business owner. They could do it, maybe, in a, in a, but they want to do it now. So it's just like yeah. tempering these expectations for the youth and let them know that they, they can attain they can attain a lot of things, but it's better to master things that you're good. And that, that's controversial in saying what well, I'm saying right now. Well, it shouldn't be because let me posit this, and I say this as the son of an electrician. What is wrong with being a welder is the better question is why Absolutely why are you nothing. only a car salesman. thank you exactly why are you taking your self-worth when what your paycheck is going to be do you contribute hey. to the world that you live in are you a good father are you a good person are you a good mother are you a good son a good daughter are you good to people around you that's what should that's what exceptionalism is it doesn't you're, mean you're that you're speaking, the ceo you're speaking heaven to me right now i'm a cte uh, teacher so basically i teach career technical like no you can be a refrigerator um, installation person. They make like $40 an hour. So, and you don't have.
have a whole bunch of debt. So I, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being a welder. I actually mm-hmm. encourage my kids to go in the welding programs rather than four-year degrees. But I'm just saying, like, we need to temper the expectations for these youth. Not every kid is going to be an astronaut. Not every kid is going to be an actor. Not every kid is going to play in the goddamn NFL. <laughs> we need to be realistic about what we're telling our children. Uh, yeah, how did we get here from Owlboy? comes from the exceptionalism. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think... Uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, I mean, as someone who went through a four-year school, who went through and has worked, uh, I've worked up in some different businesses doing sales, doing account management, getting into some marketing, and uh, yeah, going into those more craft uh, craft experience jobs, you're making a, a lot more money off out the gate, you're getting better benefits, and you're going to set yourself up for a long-term lifestyle. Now, other places, when you're taking on this debt, you're opening up businesses, there's so much more risk, so I think when it comes down to it, do what's smart. They, I think there's going to be uh, some different paths people start going on than just the four-year degree with uh, what the focus has been the last 20, 30 years. And I think at the end of the day, look at it like basketball stats. Let's all just come into this world, tell our kids, hey, we all have a plus minus. When you yeah. leave this earth, if you have a plus and if everyone just had that mentality, I'm not saying you have to have a plus 20 and put up LeBron James numbers, but if you have a plus one, the world's just a little bit better than from when you joined it. If we all took that mentality, it'd be a better place. That's so I funny. That I say that so often, not in the basketball terms, but I say that exact message all the time. And if no. that doesn't work, just move to Norway and make a video game. <laughs> just, just ride the coattail of the Norwegian government, baby. Yeah, and I, I really want to make it known that I'm not bashing on welders or anything like that because I come from a blue-collar family, but I'm just saying, like, you know, we, we have options out there. Our kids have options. Not every kid is going to be a LeBron James. They can be a Bob who works 9 to 5 who's making a good, like, fifty to 60000 a year. That's a good wage, man. Yeah, so. and if everybody was LeBron James, then LeBron James wouldn't be very special. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, that took up a lot of time, and <laughs> we're actually uh, pretty much at the end of it. Um, let's uh, let's close out with just a little bit. I want to know, Eddie. I know what you've been playing because we talked about it for the entire podcast. Colin, what have you been playing this week? You know what? I'm gonna stick with some Owlboy, but really been uh, finally hit the end game of Monster Hunter and uh, working on my. Now they have like multiple sets of gear for different monsters, and uh, the end game. The end game's a little lazy. It's a little lazy how they introduce uh, the story. No, the story. How they're just like, oh, monsters are back. How did this happen? My favorite. Um, I'm sorry for interrupting you. My favorite part about the end game is like you essentially finish the last mission and then you go on to the next mission. They're like, well, you've been gone for a while. It's time for you to get back. It's like, no, nah, I was just like gone for five seconds. It's going on to another mission. I just uh, saved just, the world, but whatever. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty lazy, but it's so much fun. It's my go-to like after a long day of work, just being able to sit down, throw on some uh, music, throw on a podcast and play some Monster Hunter. Um, it's it's great. So I'm loving that game. I'm going to keep playing it. It's uh it's going to be tough to, to beat this game for Game of the Year. That's all I'm going to say. They set the bar high in January, so we'll see uh, when December hits. But good luck, other developers. Luckily, we got Red Dead. Or no, that got pushed to 2000. Is that 2019 now? No, it's October. 2018. Octo- October. There's still a chance, though, it may get pushed back. But they it, there's some big shoes to fill with Monster Hunter. What are you, what are you playing right now, Pat? Uh, not Zelda constantly all the time. All I play is Zelda. I'm sorry. It's like it's eaten my life. It's becoming a problem. I think I need to see a professional. A Zelda uh, professional? I don't. I think you're okay. I think Zelda just has that hooks on people. You're just a little late again. Pat <laughs> plays games late again. I just want to make sure it's good before I pick it up. Pat, just pop in the Game Shark, beat Ganon automatically, and just turn it off, and you're good to go. Deal. God, I miss Game Shark. Uh, game Shark was garbage. Only way I could get Mewtwo. You guys are garbage. You guys are garbage people. Get out of here. We're not talking about Game Shark right Scrubs. now. Scrubs! You're scrubbing. Yeah, get out of here. Sorry, it's the only way I can fill my Pokedex, jerk. <laughs> Alright, thank you everybody else, uh, everybody except for Colin, because he's a cheater, for joining cheater. us uh, yet again on the Donkey Kong Artist Podcast. We also have a website now, woo! Yay! And a big shoutout. Come follow us. We have weekly contributors. Weekly? Bi-weekly? I don't know. We have people writing for us, too. So come check out our new article about some rumors in the Star Wars EA universe. I'm not going to spoil it, but come over and read it. Lots of great stuff over on that website. And a huge shout-out to our friend Craig Batori, who is just a wonderful human being all around for designing our website and for doing a whole bunch of awesome stuff and for just being the cutest guy in the whole world. Yes, yeah, cutest tech whiz oh. ever. Really quick, like to announce the winner of our Dragon Ball Fighter Z contest. Dun, Thank dun, you dun, for dun. everyone listened. 
but Riley Brewer, you have won Dragon Ball Fighter Z. So please contact us at DonkeyConArtists at gmail.com with contact information so we can get you that game. Congratulations, Riley, and thank you for listening. Thank you very much, everybody. Find us on Twitter. Find us on DonkeyConArtists.com. Uh, we are on Gmail at DonkeyConArtists at gmail.com. Pretty much anywhere you can find someone on the Internet, we are there. Go on Craigslist. Go on JDate. We're all over the place. Yeah, Tinder, Bumble, Bye, love you. Bye. I'm on my way to Black Panther. You will now call me Edwala. <laughs>